0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for donate. Hey, For the Wild World, it's Molly here, the media director of For the Wild, and I just want to give you a weekly reminder to please consider subscribing to our Drip campaign. I want to give a special shout out to Alex, Nadia, Boris, Tarin, Lewis, Kelly for subscribing in the last week. We really appreciate your support. And if you subscribe, you can get access to bonus content and material, so please head over to d.rip backslash for dash the dash wild to subscribe to be a contributing member. Thank you so much and we love you and enjoy the show.
1: we've got really good things here in the horizon for trying to save the earth one death at a time. is broken by somebody crying trying to be heard never a word always the attitude sort out your own always alone wishing for something the world is denying out in the wilderness somebody's crying mm. Wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell Wishing to help Someone was listening Someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on And someone to trust Who needs your assistance
0: Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we will be speaking with Elizabeth Fournier. Elizabeth is the author of The Green Burial Guidebook, Everything You Need to Plan an Affordable, Environmentally Friendly Burial. She is owner and operator of Cornerstone Funeral Services outside of Portland, Oregon. She serves on the advisory board for the Green Burial Council, which sets the standard for green burial in North America. She lives on a farm with her husband, daughter, and many goats. Well, welcome to For the Wild, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for seeing the beauty in death and bringing that to people everywhere.
1: And thank you for seeing the beauty in it. I loved how you introduced me and the concept of wanting to really talk about this and take a deeper dive into what it is like to have a green afterlife.
0: Well, before we delve into Green Burial, I'd like to share with the listeners a little more information on the environmental impacts of conventional burials. For example, in the United States, conventional burials annually use 30 million board feet of hardwoods, 2,700 tons of copper and bronze, and 1,636,000 tons of reinforced concrete. The amount of casket wood being used is equivalent to 4 million acres of forest which, if left in trees, could actually sequester 65 million tons of CO2 a year. Conventional burials in the U.S. also put approximately 4.3 million gallons of embalming fluid in the ground. Formaldehyde, which is known as a carcinogenic, amounts for at least 800,000 gallons worth. Cremation, while less harmful than the embalming process, emits carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, heavy metals, and mercury emissions. So, Elizabeth, could you tell us a little bit about the history of conventional burials and how we arrived at common burial practices that are just so incredibly harmful in all of their stages?
1: Sure, and this is something that I really love to inform people about, and this is really a great place to start. So green burial or natural burial, whatever you want to call it, those two terms are really interchangeable. These have existed since the beginning of time. I mean, for most of human history, when the dead were buried, we were really wrapped in shrouds. We were placed in simple wooden boxes. We were lowered into just a basic hole covered with the earth. And then we returned naturally to the earth, and we had some small ceremony, but there weren't products and services, and it's not like what we see now. This is how we went about our lives until the Civil War came. And why the Civil War is such an important turning point in the funeral industry is because there is magnitudes of boys that passed away and were killed in battle, we needed to get them back to be buried at their homelands. Families really want loved ones back in their own private yards or in their own churchyards. So, in order to get these boys transported back home, we had to figure out how to do that with these remains of these soldiers. So, embalming was created. Some doctors came up with some preservation methods, primarily using formaldehyde. And we were able to do that, and it worked, and it was successful. So there was an eye on the prize. There was that concept of, hey, there's some money to be made here. So there was some more teaching and some more schooling. And before you knew it, we had funeral directors. And these funeral directors were primarily boys because that's who went to school and got education. They opened up funeral homes, and rather than having the family keep their loved one in the front funeral parlor. They were having their loved ones whisked away from the home into the funeral parlor that was in town. So with that, we no longer had the craftsmen making the basic casket. We were being provided different services and there were all these different fancy boxes that came along to be buried in then we could be embalmed and preserved and we can go in fancy cars and then before we knew it this whole funeral industry was just blossoming and burgeoning rather than using the standard churchyard there is the design in the 1950s of the memorial park and the idea that we could find this wonderful swath of God's acre that would be green and be majestic and beautiful. And in order to keep it like that, of course, we have to fertilize it and we have to put all the pesticides down to make it sparkling green. But this would be a wonderful, lovely place to have your loved one in order to keep those grounds that way. Not only do we have the external chemicals, but we have the grave liners, which is a concrete box, which would go inside these graves to hold the earth up. So you sort of can see the progression here. We had the progression of the funeral industry, of the cemetery industry, but really we're having the regression of our love and our upkeep of of the environment.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's so interesting to see how the Civil War and the death of these boys, like you've mentioned, really being the catalyst for industrialized burials. I never knew that. That's really interesting. So just to speak about these green burials more. So what you said, you know, not using embalming fluids and burying the body in a biodegradable shroud or coffin, and there's no concrete vault or grave liner. But I'm wondering if you can share with us a bit more about the work you do with Green Burial and perhaps some of the misconceptions surrounding the practice.
1: Yeah, sure. I I find that um, when I mentioned that I help families with Green Burial... A lot of people will say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that you just have them out in a field someplace? Does that mean you bring them to the national forest? And there's that lost concept of what do we do with a body? First off, we follow all legal rules. This is a method of disposition, which, of course, the United States say is fine. As a matter of fact, all 50 states say green burial is legal. It's just a matter of figuring out where in your state you can have a natural burial, albeit private property, or do you have to go to a cemetery? So I help families figure out where they're going to be buried. I very fortunately am in Oregon. I'm in a little town of Boring. I'm the undertaker of Boring, Oregon, which I never get tired of saying. I'm 20 miles outside of Portland, but it's so remote and country where I am. I'm in a very rural part of Clackamas County, which means I have the luxury and the goodwill to be able to bury people on their own property if they can follow some of the statutes according, such as they have to have at least an acre, be away from a watershed or uh, the roadway, just some things. But a lot of people have family farms and they've got a couple acres or more homesteads that have been in the family. So they don't have to buy a cemetery space. They can have their loved one in the side yard or the backyard. What I help families do is prepare a grave space. I have them decide if they want to have a simple pine box made, if they want to use the sheet off the bed, if they need help uh, learning how to use a shroud, and then do they want to keep their loved one at home? Something else kind of fantastic is there are 40 states in America that say, yep, you can act as your own funeral home. You don't have to use a funeral parlor and again oregon is one of those states so i have families who decide that they want to be their own funeral director they want to get the death certificate signed they want to provide the disposition and oversee the whole entire process for their loved one which includes having family or friends come in and bathe their loved one or dress them Or any way they want to do it. No green burial is ever alike. No home funeral is ever alike. They're all just special and meaningful and wonderful. And I am so fortunate to be able to work my passion and to really be there and observe and receive this magical gift of these days of how these families are honoring their loved ones who have passed away.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. So I'm thinking about the people who get buried at their homes or like you were saying and on their private property but honestly anywhere the CDC reports that in the US we carry 219 toxic chemicals pesticides fungicides flame retardants heavy metals and preservatives in our bodies throughout our lives so i'm curious about the implications of green burial in terms of bodily decomposition so can you speak to the possible implications of these chemicals and metals entering the ground through our bodies after death. And are undertakers in the field of green burial looking to how to neutralize these toxins? You know, how can, say, microremediation or or fungi be utilized?
1: If we have a body which is embalmed, that's three pounds of that toxic formalin going into the body some say formalin, some say formalin. I've heard two pronunciations, but that's ultimately the main chemical in the formaldehyde, which is the embalming fluid, which preserves the body. So to embalm somebody, we have the blood, the liquid, the fecal matter, basically everything inside the body naturally is removed. The embalming fluid is going in. And not only is that about three pounds of embalming fluid and formaldehyde we now have in a human body, but all of that other matter that was organic is now going to be down the drain. So we have that initially starting as a problem. We have embalmers that are spending time in the preparatory rooms, we call them prep rooms, at embalming um, facilities or funeral homes, and they are masked up and suited up because these chemicals are really heavy, nasty things. So a lot of these people who have done this for careers have become very sick. Their lungs are full with these chemicals. They've developed tumors and some cancers, and we're finding out, of course, that this stuff does not bode well for the human body alive or the human body that's passed away when a body is there buried into the ground and it has this fluid inside it over time things will biodegrade and even though a body is preserved over time the biodegradation will happen that will leak into the soil that will leak into the water table and there's nothing good about it all the way around but as Americans we feel the need to preserve our loved ones so we can make peace with the fact they passed away and rather than just viewing them in their natural state how they passed we have that idea of giving them some sort of a permaglow or a refreshed look or feel so that's something that we're working on there are some green embalming chemicals there's some different things that can be used but not many funeral homes use these and again the jury is out if that's the way we're going to continue to go I do find that standard embalming is really starting to fade away. The cremation rate, of course, is becoming very large in many states because people are shying away from that idea. They also feel that cremation is going to be a bit of a lighter carbon footprint, but we're realizing that that's not necessarily the case.
0: So I understand what you're saying about the toxic embalming fluids, but what I'm wondering is... The toxins that are are in our bodies without embalming fluids, you know, we live in a very toxic time. So even as organic as I try to eat, I know that I'm still carrying these two hundred and nineteen toxic chemicals that the CDC is reporting, and probably perhaps even more than that. So I'm talking about green burials, and what if what are some methods for helping to detoxify? a toxic body in a green burial
1: you know it's so funny that i didn't even understand the gist of the question because the reality is what you're asking doesn't really play much of a role our bodies can go down into the soil naturally they can go in the four feet level is really what we look at because that's where all of the action is happening. That's where all the fungi and the bacteria and everything in the soil is happening. Your body fits in there perfectly and everything inside your body, all of those things you're talking about that we organically have, they're fine. Everything mixes with the soil and we become a beautiful permaculture. So it turns out to be okay. And there's people who eat only synthetic food and really don't treat their bodies overly well but they still your nature does amazing things. And it's really that ashes to ashes, dust to dust, your body wants to go back to earth, as of where it came. And it fits in just like a piece of the puzzle.
0: So to speak a bit more on cremations, I would love to hear more about what you were saying with the carbon footprint of cremations. And why do you think more people are turning to cremation than ever before? Part of what i have come to is the cost associated with conventional burials to buy a plot in a cemetery to embalm the body to buy the casket Uh, these costs really add up and so if you could speak a little bit about the cost of the conventional method as well as cremation i know that might be a two-part question or perhaps they intertwine so cremation has become Very
1: popular, and this is because there are so many baby boomers who are now passing away, or they're deciding to make the plans for people in their lives that are passing away. Baby boomers are those who were born between 1946 and 1964, and these are the people that we can thank for the curbside recycling and for the idea of putting your paper into the paper bin for it to be picked up and reused. These are people who cared about styrofoam not being something that we all walk out of restaurants with. They really started the green lifestyle because of them. You know, there's Birkenstocks, there's all of these wonderful things that have happened. So these people are the forerunners and the forefront peoples who are deciding with green disposition. We are, you know, maybe trying to do something smaller. Rather than buying a full grave space, they collectively throughout the years have decided that cremation would be a better idea. You're not going to be purchasing land. You're not going to be embalming a body. You're not going to be putting it in a metal casket, putting it into a grave liner, and you're not going to be taking all of these wonderful resources and burying them. So I'll have a cremation, I'll save money, because of course it's going to be less money than purchasing all of those products, and my cremains can be scattered, they can be buried, they can be placed on the mantle, they can be any place you want. And that seemed like a really fantastic idea, because they thought, well, we're saving money and we're saving the environment. Well, they are very correct on the idea of saving money, definitely. Any funeral home you go into, if you ask to see their general price list, you will see a direct cremation or even a cremation with a visitation or a simple service is going to be running you a lot less than what we consider modern burial with the casket and all of that. Well studies have come and what we're learning is the green concepts of cremation um, weren't coming through with that. So what has happened now is we have something called alkaline hydrolysis, and there are 12 states that have said, yes, this is a fine method of disposition, and they're trying to change up how we take care of cremation. In a standard cremation, you're going to have the fuel consumption, and then you're going to have the electrical consumption, and there's going to be all the other admissions. There is so many things going on that's going out into the environment, and we're really trying to stay away from that. What's happening with the alkaline hydrolysis is this is a basic stainless steel cylinder. There is going to be uh, high-pressured water. It's going to be potassium chloride. Ultimately, you're going to have the same output as you do with cremated remains. It's the same amount of time it's only a couple hundred dollars more but you're really taking that huge carbon footprint down to about 10 percent the output the water everything afterwards many people who own these machines have this water going to seed farmers and going to pig farmers so they're able to reproduce that water again and give it to people who are using it in ergonomic ways which is really quite fantastic so we're coming a little bit full circle even in our thoughts with cremation yep it's going to be less money yep you're not going to have to have valuable land space but now rather than have all of the butane and the gas go into heating that machine up to 1800 degrees and having all of the mercury from your teeth go out into the environment And have all that go through the ozone and come down to the land and have the little chickens eat it and then that possible pacemaker or defibrillator which gets missed by the funeral director and goes to the hot flame of the retort and ends up having all of that just terrible radiation going out into the universe we're really minimizing that so we've got really good things here in the horizon for trying to save the earth one death at a time.
0: You're on the advisory board for the Green Burial Council of Turtle Island, and I'd love to hear about the current standards for Green Burial and what shifts that you would recommend.
1: Sure. So the Green Burial Council is an organization that came to be with some people who had been in the funeral industry, the conservation industry, the energy industry, the environmental industry, and just realized that we need to have some sort of regulations or some sort of standards so people not only understand what green burial is, so there are some rules, some regulation, and ultimately just some information. I mean, information is really the biggest thing when it comes to all of this. So they decided that it might be a good idea to have different cemeteries and funeral homes who say that they want to offer green services to be able to have a place where everything can be regulated. We don't really want greenwashing to happen in the industry and greenwashing is really, you know, as the demand for the green services and the products sort of grow, it's that idea of businesses and organizations really Saying that they are doing things in a green way, but and they're trying to minimize environmental impact, but you know, they're technically not doing that. But people don't always know that. People just sometimes see something say green or natural or environmental and they just go with it. So the Green Burial Council does talk about the idea of what a green burial cemetery will look like. So I'm really glad to be able to share with your listeners that there are three different layers of green burial cemeteries and they sort of have different purposes and what i mean by that is there's first off there's a hybrid cemetery there are many cemeteries out there that were already started they already had modern burial techniques they had headstones they had the rows of graves and these cemeteries are deciding that either yeah you know we have this acre or two over That's undeveloped and we're going to allow green burials to happen there. Or they've decided to allow any grave space throughout the park to be able to have a natural burial. And that would mean somebody can come in with their loved one either in a shroud or a cardboard box or in a natural casket. They can lay their loved one to rest inside the grave space without any sort of a grave liner or a barrier that won't help them biodegrade. They can help backfill the grave with soil and spend their time and they can have a natural burial inside a regular cemetery where you do see headstones and everything looks like a relatively standard cemetery. The next level of cemetery, um, there's a lot of these springing up too, are natural burial preserves. And these are created with the idea of just a natural burial. So all the bodies buried there, they do not have any embalming. They are not going to have any sort of metal in the casket or toxic glue, shellac, lacquers. They're not going to have any sort of a concrete or a steel burial vault. And those graves are going to be, the soil is dug from them and removed the the layer from the topsoil to the sod to however the natural elements are that will be put back directly in line as it was removed. So meaning there'll be piles of the soil. So we will put everything back. We don't just fill the hole with dirt as a whole. We little by little put everything back So the permaculture and everything is exactly how it needs to be. We want the root systems to be able to reconnect again. And then that grave is never mowed. It's never fertilized. It looks however it looks. It's going to grow organically with whatever natural foliage and fauna is occurring there at the cemetery. So it gives it a really nice sort of meadow field and which is wonderful. Some of those cemeteries say you can bring in seeds for wildflowers and they have their own rules. The third level and uh, the grounds that we see less of, but are becoming more and more and more important in the green burial movement are the conservation burial grounds. And these are the cemeteries that have all of the requirements of the green burial in the natural setting but ultimately these are really trying to keep that high degree of the intrinsic social and ecological value we're really trying to make sure that the land is being conserved the money that's coming in to buy these grave spaces either the money is specifically going to Regulate and be an endowment fund for this land, or at least half of the money is going back to buy more land for more graves. So ultimately, we're getting into that idea of green burial land where more acres are coming. And rather than God's small acre of a cemetery, we will have areas and maybe even a green burial forest. And the idea of this is a wonderful landscape right here to bring your loved one back to earth to come full circle how it was definitely meant to be. And we're just trying to work with the ecosystems as best as we possibly can.
0: Wow, that's so incredible. And I just have a um, clarifying question between the, I guess, Green Cemetery and the conservation burial plots. Um, I guess I'm wondering, is the only difference that one is meant for conservation and obtaining more land for conservation that maybe isn't all completely a burial site, but the burials that do occur go into purchasing more land for more conservation. Maybe it's uh, public land or, yeah, if you could just get into some more details around the two and how they would function and how they do function.
1: Sure, right. So the conservation sites are really put together to be able to develop more land specifically for burials our very first conservation site came back in 1993 in a place called ramsey creek preserve and that was done in westminster south carolina there was a town doctor named dr billy campbell and he was a naturopath and he really wanted to be able to bury people on private land and have this sort of nature preserve um the state the city they all thought he was pretty cuckoo and they weren't really up for the idea But the only thing that allowed him to move forward was he was the town doctor and he was very revered and very respected. So he was able to move aside and do this. He had 33 acres that he chose. And over time, he has been able to expand it to 78 acres because what happens is a family will come in. They will purchase one of these spaces And then with that, he takes most of that money in a fund to buy more acres. His goal ultimately is 100 acres. So he has the fund to buy more acres, and then he has to have some money to keep up the management of the cemetery. And that doesn't mean the mowing, and that doesn't mean, you know, the chemicals of it all. Uh, But just be able to, obviously, when you have land in general, I mean, somebody needs to prepare the grave spaces. There's just some other things which need to happen for keeping a business open. So, and most of these wonderful preserves like this have waterfalls and they have native vegetation and footpaths and they're lovely. Now, as far as natural burial grounds, they ultimately are doing most of this. However, they don't have that designation that all monies that come in need to be put towards buying new spaces. They can stay at their same acreage. They can be doing what they're doing, and they can just be a preserve, which is set aside for burying people. So does that answer your question?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I would love to hear about more of these both green cemeteries and these conservation Plots, you know, you'd mentioned the one in South Carolina, but are there any others uh, that you could share with the audience so that they can start looking into them? Maybe ones that you really resonate with, uh, ones that you're really liking their model.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there are um, a few in California that I'm really, really, really enjoying, just because that's a state close to me. Now, there are the ones in California are just natural burial, um, the ones I'm thinking about. There is one that is called Forever Fernwood, and this is right above San Francisco. And this came about with a lovely woman named Esmeralda Kent, who was a costume designer back in the 70s. And she had so many friends pass away of AIDS and different diseases in the 70s and 80s. And The magnitude of grief was so heavy for her that she decided to, go ahead and parlay her costume making into shroud making and she makes these beautiful shrouds and her business is Ken Caraco and she's in San Francisco so she worked here she's one of the first pioneers of this of the cemetery and it was just neat to see this grow of just above San Francisco down a little further there's in the Half Moon Bay area of California there's another cemetery where a man decided that this little tiny place was falling in disrepair there wasn't going to be any uh this it just it was abandoned a tiny cemetery a tiny town so edward bixby who has a cemetery in new jersey came out looked at it and said yeah i want to do something with this so he's turned this completely into a natural burial preserve called Parissima, and it's just amazing to see these things happen and the like-minded people who move forward with this. Now, there are some conservation grounds. One that's probably one of the most known is Prairie Creek. That's in Gainesville, Florida. And it's really fun to name cities for people where they say, oh my goodness, you know, that's not a little tiny town like Boring, Oregon. You know, that's a relatively larger town. There's a lot of green burial cemeteries and things in Ohio. I mean, it's just amazing to know that there is a lot really going on and just about every state has a cemetery where you can bury somebody. So the, the model of these is just the idea of allowing a body to come in, families to take their time, families to walk the grounds, choose the space with a real low pressured sales model. It's really amazing to have this happen and families to be able to have a burial that is really exactly how they want it to be. Most of them have the whole park to themselves. There's all these different areas between the indigenous trees, the meadows, the grasses, and people really can choose something which is so specific to them versus walking around more of an industrialized memorial park where it's the flat green grass and there might be one tree or two in the park, but really it's just a wide swath of grass. This is just really a very specific area and you can resonate and really feel what is right for your person. So that idea of money being put back in to buy more spaces and to cultivate more land for the source of having our loved ones back to earth is just really delicious to me.
0: Hmm. I love hearing about these cemeteries that I had no idea existed. Um, I had always thought about green burial. I never realized how many people have been working tirelessly to make this a reality in a very industrialized world at this time. So it's really encouraging to hear. And I have a question around cremation and green burial. So I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about in these green cemeteries is these natural burials, but what about putting cremated remains in the green or natural cemeteries? Is that something that you often see? And something that I'd heard is that once a body is cremated, the ash is actually toxic to a lot of plants, but I don't know if that is the case and what your experience is with that.
1: Well, with cremains, what we're finding is there is a pretty high pH level so that's sort of acidic when you're going to bury cremains problem with those is if you bury them all in one space for instance people say well i want to be a tree and i'm going to take my cremains and i'm going to go ahead and i'm going to place them into the ground i'm going to put a seedling um, intermixed with this and my loved one fully will become a tree Uh, tricky to do that because again with the ph level that doesn't work so well You can scatter cremains, which helps better if you rake them in and intermix them with the soil. That's definitely a better idea. People have buried cremains inside green burial spaces. Primarily, it's for the body to go back into the earth. But I know that ultimately, at that point, if you are cremated, then there's not going to be anything inside you at that point. You're not embalmed. You know, there's all those things that are really are not going to hurt the water tables. There is a man who has a a product called Let Your Love Grow. And that's the idea of taking undiluted cremains that aren't exactly the healthiest for plants, but he has them mixed. The cremation ash is mixed with a, a specially formulated organic matter. And that way the cremains can be used fully for planting soil. And the mixture becomes a low, very low sodium and really low pH content. And then that way, those ashes can release just nutrients that will fertilize plants. So that's one way to do that. Other families have decided to rake them. Other people have taken the cremains and have gone ahead and put them in more of an eternal reef. You can spend eternity there at the bottom of the ocean. There's these wonderful pods that a Georgia-based company called Eternal Reefs makes. And it's human ashes. It mixes them with the cement, and they create these reef balls. They look like these huge wiffle balls, and they're sunk offshore, and they become these artificial reefs, and fish and other marine life really go through them and enjoy them, and they, you know, they support the sustainable ocean, and it is uh, something interesting. You can use it by locating with the GPS system, so you sort of know where your loved one is. It's kind of a neat thing.
0: it's so interesting hearing about all these different ways of being in relationship with death of loved ones. And that kind of brings up thoughts around my next question where I feel like more and more people are waking up to the reality of how separate we are from death. Although in a lot of ways we live in this death culture of the mass extinction and gosh industrialization is killing so much but yet we're so disconnected from our loved ones when they die like you were saying earlier in the conversation that the bodies are taken away from us we're not in relationship with the process of burying our loved ones and so on and so forth so this is a question around your experience with working with people and let's say um somebody who is really interested in these green burials but are living in a family who this may be something that's odd or doesn't feel quite right you know what is some advice that you have in starting conversations within families around this to hope to inspire people to move in this direction
1: i appreciate you asking that question because that's really a reality piece and when someone dies It's a reality, and it's something that's very uncomfortable, and it brings out personality traits that sometimes aren't the best. If you are thinking that your loved one who's passing away soon or yourself, you would like to do something more green, then you need to make your wishes known. I think you can help your family out as much as possible, meaning a lot of people haven't heard of this. It sounds like a trend, or it sounds like something new agey, Or something alternative, when really, like we discussed in the beginning, this is what 90% of humans do for burial. This is something that 150 years ago, you know, Americans were doing this on a daily basis. So we're just getting back to what we used to do. Really help your family, your tribe, your people, your community, whomever, help them out. There will be a next of kin designated when you pass away. And that is the person who has the choice of what to do with your disposition. And that's either going to be your married partner or your registered domestic partner, your adult child, your parent, your sibling, you know, whoever that is. Or if you are someone who doesn't have those people, then it's important to figure out who is going to be your person and make them your durable power of attorney. That's just sort of the legality piece. Then have the conversation with them. Let them know what you want to do, explain why it's important to you and what your thoughts are, and try to make it easy on this person by putting some of these pieces together. If you want to have a green burial, I tell people, okay, fantastic. If this is what you want to do, wonderful. So now let's work on where is your burial going to happen? If you have private land, do you want to do that? If you do, then there's steps that we follow. If you don't want to do that, is there a cemetery near you? Is there a cemetery you would like to be transported to? Where is your burial going to happen? If you want to go secure that land and get that space and make that all set up for people, wonderful. If not, if you can at least be very clear on where it is and what it is and who to call, that's very helpful. And then if you don't want your family to buy a standard casket online or at a funeral parlor, then let them know what you want to do. Is there a shroud that you saw online or is there a shroud maker that you think makes beautiful things? Would you like to be wrapped up in grandmama's quilt that you keep in a special drawer or on your bed? Um, Did you want to have your neighbor make you a pine box? Would you like to buy a cardboard box and have people start painting on it with non-toxic glue and get this ready? So you probably can see where I'm going. Put some of these pieces in place because when someone dies in the United States, typically what happens is hospice, the nursing home, the funeral home within a very short period of time say okay what mortuary are you using who's coming to get the body and then they're whisked off to a funeral home sometimes when it comes your turn to make your funeral arrangements and you show up at the funeral home they hand you a general price list they have everything itemized as far as the goods and services and say this is what we offer pick what you want and sometimes it's hard to advocate and say well you know I had a conversation with my brother Bob and This is kind of what he wanted to do. And, you know, they might say, well, uh, uh, that's not really how we do things here or, you know, all of those things happen. So it's important to know that we have family rights. Our dead are our property. They're our person. We can advocate for them. And so if this is something that's important to you to do something that we don't standardly do nowadays with American burial services, then let somebody know. Put it in that bright colored file, have it on your drawer. Do not put your plans in your safety deposit box Because people don't get into your safety deposit box until they have access to get into it, which probably means they have to already have a certified copy of a death certificate, which means they've had to go into a funeral home and already make your funeral plans. and You're probably buried or you're cremated at that point. And that doesn't do any good to your wishes. So let your wishes be known. Don't make them too ostentatious. Make it affordable. Maybe even put money aside for the family. And if you especially want to be kept at home and you want to have a home funeral or a home burial, then assemble your team. Hillary Clinton always said it takes a village when it comes to raising a child. Well, let me tell you, it takes a village when it comes to taking care of somebody who passed away. Somebody needs to either bathe the person or transport the person or get a doctor to sign a death certificate. And one person doing that is tricky. You loved that person. They passed away. You're probably tired. You probably haven't slept great. So assembling a couple people who can really step up into action and do things is so important. So get your team assembled and really make those plans, put it on paper, and communicate. That's really such a wonderful gift that we have that's free talking, just talking, sharing, loving.
0: That is such good information that you shared. I really personally didn't understand all the intricacies of what happens. And I was always wondering about the legalities of once somebody dies, you know, what is the process you have to go through to make it legal to be able to bury somebody at home or not in a industrialized cemetery and so you had mentioned the death certificate and I guess this is a maybe a really odd question but if somebody say dies at home um, not in a hospital setting what would you do in that case to make it uh, legally known that that person has passed and then burying them at home do you have to go through professionals yeah what would be the protocol
1: Okay, so the steps involved is, if you happen to pass away in your house, either you are under hospice care, which means you have a medical team which has medical history on you that's watching you medically, so we have somebody right away who can sign a death certificate. That team either is going to have a nurse, they're going to have a provider being a doctor or a medical director who says, yes, fine, I'll sign the death certificate. So that's relatively easy. Hospice then at that point takes over, they call the funeral home you chose or they can turn the care over to the family and the family can go from there. What that means go from there would be if you are in one of the 40 states where you can take care of your loved one, then you call either your local mortuary board or your local vital records. And from there, you can get a live death certificate, which means a certificate, which now you can write in black ink Fill in all the vital records on there. It asks questions such as the person's name, where they were born, their parents' full names, just some basic vital information about them. You go get a provider, someone to sign it, and then it can go on to the county where the person passed away and you've done your legal paperwork to go ahead and keep somebody at home. Some families just decide that they want to act as a funeral director where they want to do the care. They want to keep their loved one at home for a couple days. They want to provide some sort of cooling. They want to get the paperwork, the transportation, but then they're going to turn their loved one over to the funeral home because you legally cannot embalm or cremate your loved one. You still have to purchase that professional service. So it really depends on what you're planning on doing. Not everybody also is comfortable driving their loved one to a cemetery or has a vehicle can do that. Um, some families don't want to bury their loved one on their own property. So every service is completely different. Now let's say you passed away in your own home and you don't have hospice. either somebody you wake up and that person in your house you know is no longer alive, just they died in their sleep or they had an accident. I think some people just naturally call 911. There's that idea of it's so shocking that somebody is on the floor or somebody is not waking up and we call medical assistance because we want a first responder to come. So if you know somebody psychologically is not alive, but you make that phone call, well, no one faults you for that. That's just a human response. You want to help the person you love. A lot of families, if they intrinsically know that, yes, this person is not alive, they might call the non-emergency line to the police and say, I'm reporting a death. In this case, a deputy, most likely from a county, will come out to the house. They take a look around, just get a report. A medical examiner or a coroner, depending on what state you live in, normally are notified. They don't always come out and take the body away. They don't always perform an autopsy. It really depends state to state county to county, depends on your situation. Are you being seen by a regular doctor? Are there medication bottles around the house that show, yes, you had high blood pressure, yes. And is there a doctor that says, yeah, I I was seeing this person for this. Sometimes people don't go to the doctor at all. They haven't been seen by any provider for many, many years. And that's more where the medical examiner will get involved, either if something looks accidental, there's some sort of suicide, some sort of foul play, or if somebody just they, they, there's no clue that why somebody passed away. That's more where they get involved and do more of an exam. So that might have been a little bit more of an elaborate answer. But I'm always happy to inform people because all we know is really either what we lived firsthand or what we saw on TV. And I can't tell you the amount of times people have asked me about when is the Inquisition going to happen? And they talk about the scene of the crime and they want to know if they can go back in and all these things that we've learned from all of these television shows that most deaths are very simple. They're very quiet and it's just a matter of the loved ones trying to figure out what their new normal looks like that this person they loved is no longer in their life.
0: I so appreciate you taking the time to get really detailed with that response. I think a lot of the listeners will be also really grateful to have that knowledge because I think what you've been saying, you know, when a loved one dies, the overwhelm, the grief, sets in. And then of course, all the logistics also set in. And so to have an idea of what it actually entails before the death occurs, I think is so helpful. And I think back to this interview we had with Steven Jenkinson with his book, Die Wise, and how the way in which people die is really important. And it's so overlooked in this dominant culture. And it's really something that is a detriment to all of us to not have a stronger relationship with death for ourselves, for our loved ones, our family members. So communication and really talking and thinking about these things before it occurs, I just feel like is such an important thing, important education for all of us to spend time learning about. So thank you. And I really encourage the audience to seek out a copy of your book, the Green Burial Guidebook. And I'd love to open up the conversation and ask if there's anything we didn't cover in our conversation they would like to highlight either from that book or from your personal experience.
1: Sure, absolutely. Two things I would like to say. One, I knew at a very young age that I was going to be an undertaker. This is my calling. I had a mother who passed away, as well as my dad's parents, who all lived in the same house. And so it's interesting how I always knew that was my calling. But then I found out after my first green burial, I found out, uh oh, my real calling is to be a green mortician. And it was so powerful. It was such a watershed moment for me. And these green burials that I've had an honor to be a part of have been so eye opening. And I'm so thankful because even though I had a rewarding life as a funeral director and an undertaker to go one step further into this green world and this environmental world has just been, it's been amazing. And then secondly, I want to say to your listeners that when somebody dies in your life, it is so overwhelming. It is so hard. You need to drink your water. You need to remember to eat. You need to stay around positive people. And remember that whatever choices you make are absolutely Right. I always encourage people to think about shades of green. If you aren't going to go fully with a green funeral or a green burial, maybe just think about some element where you can be sustainable or you can recycle or just do something for the environment. I think that's a wonderful thing to leave your listeners with.
0: Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been a really educational and deeply felt conversation and I really appreciate all of the work you've done for so many years to inform people, to help people in their very vulnerable states and to teach people that these are realities. Because I, like I said earlier, I think so many of us don't even know that this is an option. And like you said, we learn from television or another experience we've had, but we don't always know all the options. I think many of us don't. So this has been incredibly helpful.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for taking an interest and sharing your time with me.
0: Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was by Anne Laplantine and Kevin McLoyd. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our incredible production team, our producer and editor, Andrew Storrs, our research director and collaborator, Madison Mogolski and Francesca Glassbell, our media director, Molly Liebow and our music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, and please rate us on iTunes if you haven't already. Also, go to drip, d.rip slash four dash the dash wild, and stay tuned for next week. All right, thanks, and see you later. Of talking,
1: words of blue and gray Smells of doors and windows
0: Closed again. We'd smell the pines, tall western cedar,
1: drifting on the wind, through the mountains like a river.